Well, good morning, Branch Church. It is a blessing to be with you all this morning and all of our church family online as well. We're glad you're with us. What do Star Wars, Romeo and Juliet, Lord of the Rings, and Jurassic Park all have in common? They all have prologues. They all have this short introductory period in the book or the movie where they prepare you for the story and what's going to happen. We've seen it in Star Wars, in a galaxy far, far away, and then it scrolls through this background information and you're ready to jump into the story. Romeo and Juliet, you're introduced to a love that's born in between two warring houses. I don't know about you, but I'm like, I want to see what's going to happen next. Lord of the Rings introduces us to Middle-earth and some of its main characters, dwarves and humans, hobbits. I don't think there's any gnomes. I don't know the story that well. In Jurassic Park, one of my favorite prologues, we're introduced to a guy who's been wounded and has claimed he had a construction accident. But upon looking at his wounds, it's like, that doesn't look like construction, buddy. That looks like an animal ripped you apart. What happened? And as he's dying, he mutters this phrase, ipso raptor. Ipsoraptor. And the reader's like, what's going on? But we know exactly what he said, right? He said, Velociraptor. And you think, here we go. Today we are beginning the book of John. John 2 opens with a prologue, 18 verses designed to purposefully give you the broad picture of the story and also to introduce you to the themes of the rest of the 20 chapters, 20 plus chapters that we are going to read together. And as we read this prologue, these first 18 verses, we're going to learn this, that God has fully revealed himself and his salvation in a person. Yes, in a person. And this is where the Jedis, the Montagues, the Capulets, even the Velociraptors, Gandalf and Darth Vader lean in and go, I've got to see this. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, to John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. There are many, there there are multiple ways to look at this prologue. I'm going to give you one that I like that I came across in studying this time for the first time. I think there's one picture given here. God's revealed himself and his salvation in a person. And I think he's going to give this one picture three times. And in each time, it's going to be filled in with a little more detail, a little more detail. We begin with this picture, chapter one, verse one. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The first three words, in the beginning, strike us, because they're the very same three words that open the entire Bible. It is very likely, highly likely, I think even certainty that John is alluding to the very first three words of the entire Bible. And so when he opens the gospel, he actually takes us back to the very beginning. What was in the beginning? God. That was it. It was God. There was nobody else. There were no people, no planets, no galaxies, no life whatsoever. There was just God. And John tells us there's a little more to the story. In the beginning, there was also someone else. There was the word. He tells us two things about the word. The word was with God and the word was God. That the word was with God expresses relationship, companionship. They were together And they were both together in eternity existing. 
not only were they together, he tells us this, the word was God. Whatever you can attribute truly to God, you can also truly attribute to the word and his nature. This is profound. We have, we have not, we didn't know this before. We read the rest of Genesis, it doesn't tell us this. The rest of the Old Testament does not tell us this. Not until we get to John does he say there's a little more to the story. There's actually the word. And I like how D.A. Carson couches it. He says he was God's eternal fellow and yet God's very own self. Now, why does John use the word word? We read that and go, I, I don't know if that makes it more clear or more confusing. It's a little bit weird to me. But if you were a Hebrew, if you were a Jew and you knew your Old Testament, this would strike you as, wow, profound. A Hebrew Jew might say this, oh, I know, I know the word in the Old Testament. Psalm 33, verse six, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. The word was involved in creation. He was the very agent that created all things. Jeremiah chapter one, verses four and five, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I knew you, I formed you in your mother's womb. I appointed you a prophet to all nations. The word was involved in revelation, revealing God's truth to people, specifically here, Jeremiah. Not only that, Psalm 107, verse 20, the word came and brought healing. The word came and brought deliverance. The word was also involved in healing and delivering people. Not only that, Isaiah 55, 11, God sends out his word. And when he does, it does not return void. It accomplishes the purposes for which he sent it. So when the word goes out, the word is victorious. So when you calculate all the uses of word here, we see that the word of God was involved in creation, revelation, healing, deliverance, and victory. You hear that and go, Wow, that's incredible. John continues here. He says that he was in the beginning with God. And you go, well, why, did he, why is he saying it again? I'm pretty sure he just said that. Why say it again? You say something again because you want it to be clear and you want it to be understood. What's interesting in this verse is that word he, it's not a pronoun, a personal pronoun in the Greek. It's a demonstrative pronoun. Demonstrative pronouns are important. John uses them all the time. They are pointing pronouns. We say that man, those kids, these people over here, right? So when John says this, he goes, that man, that one was in the beginning with God. Like, did you hear what I just said? And then he says this, all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Every single thing, visible and invisible, owes its existence to the word of God. Not one thing can you think of that came into being apart from his agency, apart from him as creator. When you go to the store and you buy clothes, I'm pretty sure they all have it. They'll have a tag and it'll say made in China. <laughs> or not all of them or made in the USA, you go to a toy store, made in Taiwan, right? They all have some kind of tag or imprint that signifies 
where it came from. As you look out in creation, what do you see? As you're at your home and you're thinking about looking at your kitchen window, what things do you see? As you're driving up to go on vacation somewhere, what things do you see in creation? Every single thing you see, you have got to see there's an invisible tag or a stamp on it that says this, made by the word of God. I don't want to ruin the story just yet. Not that I'm going to ruin it. <laughs> but I like to experience the story as it's given to us. But I'll, I'll jump ahead a little bit. This is Jesus. Everything was made through the agency of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ, including you and me. He says this, in him was life. What kind of life are we talking about here? Well, verse three just said that he was the creator. So this must be some kind of creating life in which it's talking about. In him was this creating life and the life, that creating life was the light of men. Light here speaking of revelation, revealing something. You see, he's not only the agent of creation, he's the agent of revelation. He is the revealing light. The creator is also the revealing light to the world. And he says this, and the light shines in the darkness. When John speaks of darkness, he is not speaking of a physical place so much. He's speaking of a moral understanding of that place. The light shines into a rebellious, corrupt, evil, and perverted world. When John speaks about the world, it's not glorifying it with sunshine and flowers. It's telling us how bad it is, and this glorifies the light and how great the light is that it would still shine to this broken world. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Some of your versions might have did not overcome it. It seems that John is possibly being intentionally vague here. It could be either of these words. We were teaching the youth a couple weeks ago. When you look up a definition of a word, which one is it? We use the word sick. Yo, dog, that's sick. Versus, excuse me, doctor, my daughter is sick. Context helps us tell the difference. When we look at context, it's really hard to see the difference. Both of these could well be true. I lean towards this, that it speaks more of they did not overcome it, meaning it speaks of victory. He's still bringing some sort of victory. So we have the one picture. What's the one picture? God has fully revealed himself and his salvation in a person. But it's really vague here. All we really have is the light shining into the darkness, the creating, saving, revealing, eternal God, which is also the word. Now we're going to be given more details here in verse 6. The second re reiteration of this picture. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. We're given more details here. There's something to do with belief now. We weren't told that in the first five verses. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That, there's that pointing pronoun again, that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. God has not only shined his light, he has also sent a forerunner to prepare the way so we could understand who that light actually is. There seems to be confusion. People were thinking it's John. John makes very clear, not this guy, 
It's that guy, this one. And we're going to get more details in the rest of chapter one as we are given John's testimony. But for now, he makes very clear, it's not me. John tells us something very shocking now. He says this. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. This could be either they didn't know him, like, oh, I didn't know it was you, man. Totally missed it. Sorry, my bad. Or this could be they didn't know him in the sense of rejection. He came to his own. Now I think we're talking more specifically about the Jews. He came to his own, his very own people whom he made covenants with, saved again and again. And his own people did not receive him. Can you imagine if you were a parent and you came home to your house and your kids locked the door on you and you said, hey kids, I'm home, open the door. They said, we don't know who you are, go away. And you laugh it off, okay guys, ha ha ha, open the door, let me in. No, seriously, we don't know who you are, go away. And then you try your key and it doesn't work. And you're like, what's going on here? They close the curtains. They hold up a phone like they're dialing 911. You're like, guys, now it's not even funny. Now I'm upset. Open the door. Can you imagine how it would feel as a parent if they really carried that on and were sincere about that? You'd be hurt. Are you guys kidding me? I'm dad. I'm mom. I own this house. I own you. I'll throw you out of here if you don't let me in. I point that out to say, can you imagine the hurt that God felt in this process? He came to his very own. I made you. I created you. I thought of you. I gave you gifts. I gave you personality. I made your veins work, your heart pump, your brain tick, your eyes see, your teeth chew. I gave you everything that you needed. And this is how you repay me just by rejecting me? What does that say about God? Oh, the deep, deep love of the father that he would still come to his own, even though his own are saying, get out of my face and holding up their hand to him. Even though we are given shocking and saddening news, we are still giving blessed and amazing news. Verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Yet there was still victory. Going back to verse 5. He shined in the darkness. The darkness did not overcome it. They rejected. They said, no, we don't want it. There was still victory. God still saved as many as received him. To them, he gave the right to become children of God. He explains here what it means to receive him. He says this, to those who believe in his name. To receive him is to believe in his name. You are believing in a very specific object and the truth that encompasses that object. When you believe in Jesus, you are believing in a person and you are casting your full weight on that person to the point where if you were to remove that object, you would fall down and hit the ground. He is completely holding you up. To believe in his name is to believe in his claims, to believe in what he said. It's to believe in what he has done on your behalf and what he will do on your behalf. Some people say, oh, I believe. And then they go off and live their life the way they want. Not giving any attention to the actual person who saves and what he requires of them not trying for a second to obey anything he has said. That's not faith. That's not belief. That's mere acknowledgement. And then you go on your way. But to believe is to cast your full weight on the claims and the ability of someone else. 
In this case, Jesus. I got ahead of myself again. Because it doesn't tell us just yet. I want you to experience the narrative. It's really fun that way. On to the word. I had, I went to a preaching conference. Yeah, we have those. Years ago, like 2017, 18, it was with Dr. Stephen Lawson, and it was like 100 guys in a room. It was a really cool experience. And during the time there, he says, during his pastoral ministry years, someone came up to him and said this, I walked down at this altar call. Three years later, I went down at this altar call. And then years later, I went to this altar call and, did, and dedicated again. And they asked him, which one do you think I got saved at? Talk about a tough question. <laughs> no idea. Here's what he said. I thought it was really insightful. He said, when did your life change? He said, when was, or at least I'll say this, when was, when was there transformation? To truly believe on Christ shows the transformative work of God. You're not the same. Your heart begins to desire differently. You begin to think differently. You begin to act differently. You're aligned now with Jesus and his truth and you want to live according to it. You're by no means perfect. You will make mistakes. But, but the trajectory and the path shifted and you're walking a different path, a different fork in the road. He explained what it means to receive him. He explains now what it means to be a child of God. He says this in verse 13, they were born. Being a child of God has something to do with birth, a rebirth, what we call being born again. He says they were born not of blood. Blood speaks of a blood relationship. It speaks of coming from your ancestors. This is something the Jews would struggle with. Abraham's my dad. I'm good. Bloodline. Totally good. Nope, that's not how you're born of God. That's not how you become his child. Nor, he says, are they born of the will of the flesh. This speaks of a procreative act, intimacy between a husband and a wife. That doesn't produce salvation either. It's not something we can do. And nor, he says, is it the will of man? It's not human design. It's not something you can conjure up on your own. But they are born of God. To be God's child, to be born again is a work of God, not a work of man. We will be given more detail here in chapter three when Jesus and Nicodemus talk about being born again. And so we have the one picture. Jesus has revealed himself and his salvation in a person. I'm sorry, God has revealed himself and his salvation in a person. And we're given a little more detail. At first, we were given the light. The word is the light that shines in the darkness and it's still victorious. And now we see that when the light shined in the darkness, the darkness said, no, we don't want nothing to do with you, but he still saved those. And what was the victory? They were given the opportunity to become children of God. We are now given stunning detail on the last reiteration of this picture. Verse 14, he says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the one and only of the father, full of grace and truth. This verse alone is worthy of an entire sermon. The word, remember verse one, what did we learn? The word, who was God's eternal fellow, who was God's self, the agent of creation, the agent of revelation, the one who brings victory to this earth. That one became flesh. He became a person. Now, he didn't stop being divine. He didn't stop being the word, but he took onto himself a human nature, inside and out, just like you and me. And now we have fully God and fully man joined together 
in a person. Most of us have probably seen or heard of Star Wars. According to starwars.com, there is a thing called the Force. And the Force is this mystical, invisible, spiritual power that binds all the galaxies together. And we see it do pretty cool things. Jedi can levitate things way heavier than them. We see Sith choke people out from across the room. We see them call objects to themselves. I think it works like this. They, you can even trick people with it. These are not the droids you were looking for. <laughs> can you imagine in a Star Wars world, if someone said this, in the beginning was the force. You know, that energy, mystical union that binds everything together and the force became flesh. The whole Star Wars universe would lean and go, I've got to see this. That kind of power, that kind of wisdom and knowledge, all, all packed into a human person. I've got to see this. Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, Yoda, they're all going to stop and go, I've got to see this. It is incredible, this act alone. J.I. Packer calls it the greatest miracle of the entire Bible. If you can believe this, you can believe the rest of Scripture. How in the world did God pack himself into a human being? Let me know when you figure it out. I believe it because he said it. I can explain it to an extent, but this is so deep. This is incredible. The creator became human. The creator. How much knowledge would you need to be the creator? How much knowledge would you need to make all things? How much biological knowledge, chemical knowledge, atmospheric knowledge would you need to create the world? People spend their entire lifetimes trying to become experts at one thing in a field of knowledge. How much years of study would it take to become experts at all the fields of knowledge, all the biologies and subdivisions of it, all the chemical and all the art and life and language, even medicine. I mean, we're talking, that, that, that would take eternity. Not even then, you still wouldn't be able to do it. And yet when God spoke, when the word spoke, he created everything and he didn't mess up one thing because God took a step back. And do you know what he said? Behold, it's very good. The word didn't mess a thing up. Not only knowledge, but how much power. How much power would you need to create an earth that's suspended over nothing? And yet it's, it floats on its axis all on its own. How much power would you need to put the sun in its place, to keep it there, to hold it there, to even think of it? Who can handle the sun? Who can look directly at it for more than a few minutes? And yet God holds it. He created, he thought of it. That creator became a human being. The analogy in Star Wars falls apart. I know it does at some point, but it gets us a little step closer to understanding the immensity of this verse. And this is what John says. And he dwelt among us. He didn't show up, flashbang, see you later. It wasn't Spider-Man in the night. It wasn't Superman hit and run and you didn't get to see him. He dwelt, he walked. So God communicated himself in the most personable, understandable, and communicative way possible to us. He dwelt among us. And John says, we beheld his glory. We saw it. We understood what we saw. And he describes what this glory is. It's the glory of the one and only of the Father. We're now introduced for the first time to this idea of sonship. It's been the word the whole time. The word is also the son. The son has the glory of the father full of grace and truth. Turn with me to Exodus 34. Exodus 34. 
beginning in verse 5. Exodus 34. I didn't put this scripture up. I apologize. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 5. Moses writes, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord is going to stand with Moses. Yahweh stands with Moses. He's going to proclaim his name, which we see will be all the characteristics of him here. And the Lord passed him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Those last two words right there, abounding in goodness and truth, are the Hebrew words chesed and emet. Hesed is your love, your loyal love, that covenant love in the Old Testament. It's frequent. And then amet is this truth, this faithful truth. Why am I pointing this out to you? Because this is the glory. This is the name, the glory of God shown to Moses and Moses saw this glory. Now watch this. This glory has been recast to the New Testament called grace and truth. The glory, D.A. Carson points out, the glory that Moses saw is the same glory that John saw, but now in a person fully revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Back to John chapter one. Before he continues this thought on in verse 16, he interjects on himself and kind of cuts himself off a bit. He says, John bore witness of him and cried out. John cried out. It's easy to pass by. He cried out loudly so other people could hear it. And this crying is a perfect tense, which means he cried in the past, but that crying voice still goes forward today. We still hear it. We're still impacted because of it today. He says, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me. That is to say, he ranks before me because he was before me. There was confusion with John's coming. The confusion probably had to do with age. You're older, you generally get more honor in this culture. You're better. Isn't that great? I'm just kidding. And then Jesus comes and it's like, well, how is he of higher rank than you? Because he's younger than you. Well, actually John tells him because he was before me. He existed in eternity. Verse 16, this continues the thought of verse 14, right? We saw the son full of grace and truth, verse 16, and of his fullness, of that grace and truth, we have all received he says, and, which I think is better translated, that is grace for grace or grace in place of grace. What in the world does that mean? What is grace in place of grace? Likely it's this, grace of the revelation of God and the son in the place of God in the revelation in the Old Testament in the tabernacle. We have new revelation that supersedes that is now the supreme revelation of God. The Old Testament revelation, it's good, it's true, it points forward, but it's not the ultimate revelation. God has now given that to us in his son. Remember Hebrews chapter one, God has spoken various times and in various ways. In the last days, he's spoken to us by his son. This is the supreme revelation. This is the final word. This is it through his son who has sent out his apostles. And therefore we read the word and we believe what God has told us because of it. He says in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus 
Christ. Moses gave the law and it was good and it was God's word. But you know what's even more of a greater revelation? The grace and truth that now came through Jesus Christ for he is the word, for he's God's eternal fellow and God's very self. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son, or possibly translated the, only God, the one and only God. I did a little Devo on this week. If you didn't get it and didn't read it, I encourage you to read it. Who is in the bosom of the Father speaks of the chest. It speaks of the heart. speaks of closeness. And if you notice this, verse 18 looks very much like verse 1. They're bookends. 18 explains verse 1 just a little bit more with detail. So in the beginning, the word was with God. Verse 18, he was in the bosom of the Father. The word is the Son close to his heart, speaking of relationship and companionship. It says that he has declared him. In Christianity, we have a word called exegesis. The word exegesis means simply to draw out the author's meaning of a text. That's what we want. Eisegesis reads into it. Exegesis draws out. The word he has declared him is where we get our word exegesis from. Jesus exegetes the Father. He draws out the full meaning and expression, the divinity and the grace and the truth of the Father. Why? Because he is God just as the Father is. And so we have the one picture for the third time given. God has fully revealed himself and his salvation in a person. And we see it here. How? How, how did the light come and shine and bring victory? How is it that he was able to save? Because he became flesh and he came to this world and he has narrated God to this world. And all the world leans in and goes, I've got to see this. How did he do it? What did he say? What did he say? How did he actually shine his light? How did, how did he save? What did he do? And, that, and then we have 20 plus chapters now where we get to dive in and read and see how God actually revealed himself and how God actually saved through the word of God, who is the son of God, who became flesh, who is Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. I want to play a video for you right now. It's about three minutes. And it's, one of my, it's a clip from one of my favorite sermons where a guy just starts listing out the titles and attributes of Jesus. It is phenomenal. Sit back and enjoy, and then we'll jump back into it. The Bible says my king is a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He 
he's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a well-framed of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his word is light. to try to teach about him after hearing something like that. Oof. It's so moving and makes you want to cry and fist pump the sky all at the same time. Do we know whom we are talking about here today? Do we know whom we have to deal with? He is so far beyond. I feel so unworthy to, but we do and we do as best we can and we praise him for it. Amen.